Blog Talk Radio. Hello, fellas. This is uh, Leslie Gist. We can start the show. Okay, Leslie. Uh, My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host today for the Lillian Gist show, the Gist of Freedom. Our special guest tonight is Gary Jenkins, a filmmaker, who um, here to talk about his most recent project, The Freedom Seekers. The Underground Underground Railroad in the Midwest should be joining us here shortly. I'm here, Preston. I'm all oh, ready. Oh, you're there, Gary. Thanks. I'm ready. Okay. Uh, Gary, why don't you start us out by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background. I know you and I go back to the 1960s in the police department here in Kansas City, but okay. tell our uh, listeners a little bit more about you. Well, I sure will, Preston. I appreciate it. And, uh, uh, you know, I was, uh, Preston and I were both on the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department together back in the day, and, and uh, they were kind of split company, and, and um, I ran into him a few years ago, and uh, I was doing some volunteer work where he was uh, he was working as a, a counselor in a place called Purse Call, and um you know, I, I retired from that job, and I, I went on to uh, I went to law school, and I've been practicing law now for about ten years. And in in the last four or five years, I got interested in Kansas City and Missouri area history, and and uh, I was looking around for stories that that we didn't really know much about, and and uh, this this area and. Uh, Missourians sometimes they say we're more interested in the Civil War than we are in World War II or any other war, and I think it might be because we were so affected by it here. We had this border war with Kansas, and and uh, my family was here then, and they were affected by that, and and um, uh, most any family in in this western part of the state was affected by the. Uh, border war, the war from Missourians trying to go over to Kansas and make it into a slave state because Missouri was a slave state. And and, and so one thing I, I didn't know, I knew a lot about the Civil War in this area, a lot about the battles, but what I didn't know, first of all, I didn't know about slave life and what that was like for, for a slave in Missouri. Was it like it was down in the Deep South? That would be what one would believe. And and I started looking into it and and as you know, there's always an expert on anything out there, and I started finding experts on what slave life was like in Antebellum, Missouri. And 
First, first one I found was uh, a uh, PhD over at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, Diane Moody Burke, and she was in the process of writing a book called "Along Slavery's Borders: uh, uh, Slavery in Antebellum Missouri." And, and so I interviewed her. I'd gotten interested in making documentary films from uh, some other. I, I'd done uh, several amateur films, and then I got paid for one. And uh, uh, about the founding of the Kansas City, Missouri Free Health Clinic, and. I got a little bit of, uh, got, we had it on the local public TV, and I, I like that feeling of having my work out there and telling people little-known uh, stories about historical events that uh, were really about kind of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And, and so um, I, I started looking into this uh, slave thing, and, and I found it was interesting. It was much different than the South. It wasn't better or worse uh, for uh, for a person held in bondage and and um, uh, uh, but it was different and, and and so I did that and we showed it around and and a lot of people liked it and um, sold a few copies of it and uh, titled it Negroes to Hire and I was a little bit nervous about that title when I first did it and and an African American uh, expert who was in it, Jimmy Johnson, who was an archaeologist who had actually done a archaeological dig on a area, Kansas City area slave farm where his great grandfather had been uh, held as a slave and had escaped from there across the Missouri River into Kansas. And, and uh, the title Negroes to Hire was from an ad. One thing, one of the kind of different things about border slavery, uh, border state slavery, especially in Missouri, that uh, you would have slaves who uh, uh, there wasn't work for them, uh, and uh, you would hire them out, people would hire them out to people in town, to other farmers, and, and there were ads in the area, in a, a local newspaper in Liberty, Missouri, which was just outside of Kansas City, and the, the advertisements, the title of it was Negroes to Hire, and then it would go on in the small fine print would tell about the persons who uh, were offered for hire. So uh, I did that, and, and I got interested in it, and, and uh, Mr. Johnson was after me to do the story of the Underground Railroad along the western frontier as a kind of a natural continuation. So uh, I, at first I didn't want to do it, and, and I went over to a place called Quindaro, which was an old so, uh, antebellum Kansas town right on the river that was populated primarily by abolitionists, and that's a place that uh, Mr. Johnson's great-grandfather, a man by the name of George Washington, had crossed uh, a frozen Missouri River and uh, got into Quindaro, which is the name of the town, and, and escaped and, and ended up joining the uh, Union Army and, and fought the rest of the war with the 1st Kansas-Colored uh, Infantry Unit. And uh, so I went over there, and I just left around Quindaro, and, and it then what what an archaeologist would call pristine archaeological condition. And that what that means is doesn't mean that there's fully formed houses, but what it means is it this old town, which is right down next to the river, has not been touched since people walked away from it. Now there's a stone cabin that walls are still standing and in ruins. Uh, any of the uh uh frame houses, the wood houses are gone. There's the uh, uh there was a hotel uh, down there, a large hotel that the entire stone basement is there, and there's several other stone basements around. And you can see the uh, where the streets used to be through the underbrush. Uh, it's kind of where it's like lighter. The brush is it's less in, in a 
methodical manner, and you could tell where the streets were, and it, it inspired me. So I came back up to the top of the hill. It's about a quarter of a mile to half a mile straight down the hill into the river, next to the river. Called Jimmy up, and I said, okay, I'm going to do it. So that that's a little bit about how I got into this story of the Underground Railroad and the Western Frontier. Well, Gary, can you um, share with our listeners what was the connection uh, between the Western Underground Railroad and the or the Eastern uh, Underground Railroad to the Western Underground Railroad and those people in the East like uh, William Steele and Harriet Tubman? Well, you know, they uh, uh, for a lot of our people out here, they, they kind of operated in a vacuum, uh, I think. Uh, but 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 the connection was in the uh, northeastern part of the United States. Uh, they had the uh, the abolition abolitionist movement started. Uh, uh, there was a man named uh, I believe it was a Levi Coffin Coffin C O F F I and Levi Coffin and and he they were uh, uh, Garrett Smith uh, other abolitionists in the Northeast. They were mainly rich. White folks and and they supported people like Harriet Tubman and uh, William Still and and worked with them and uh, Quakers back east worked with them and 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 that's in the 1830s and 1840s. Um, so there's a, a recent reasonably new book out called uh, Canaan, uh, the, the Journey to Canaan, I believe, the uh, Road to the Underground Railroad, and it tells all this history of that early 1830s, 1840s pre-1850s or up to the 1850s development of the Eastern Underground Railroad and how as <clears throat> as the country spread west, then uh, people who started uh, back east with William Still and uh, uh, Frederick Douglass and Harry Tubman and, and uh, Levi Coffin and, and Garrett Smith and <clears throat> people like that one, they started going west. They took the Underground Railroad West as the population headed west along the Ohio River and <clears throat> kind of the next it had moved to uh, Ohio where people would cross from the, the river from Kentucky and, and into Ohio and and then in, in the eighteen fifties, about eighteen fifty five was when Kansas was going to be brought in as a territory and, and uh these Easterners from Connecticut and, and New England and um Pennsylvania and New Jersey and New York and uh, they start sending people out to Kansas in order to keep it from being a slave state <clears throat> because the uh, they had a compromise the uh, um, Missouri compromise and and what they said uh, and they had the Kansas Nebraska act and and uh, so what the United States said what the federal government said well these can come in as free states or slave states, depending on what the people out there want, and they can vote for it. So Missourians were going over to Kansas to vote, to vote only and go back because they wanted to vote it in as a slave state. They did not did not want. See, Missouri was a slave state. They already had Iowa and Illinois. Two of their two of their four borders were already free states. And anytime you've got a free state on a slave state border, people are going to be escaping in droves because it's not that far to go. It was really difficult for someone from the deep south to ever get away because you had too far to go through slave territory uh, to get to any free territory where anybody could help you. <clears throat> so uh, uh, as these eastern Easterners sent out their people and they um, 
they went to to Kansas and and brought the Underground Railroad as it existed back east out to Kansas. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, you mentioned. Uh, I was just had a question that. Uh, Missouri residents were going over to Kansas to vote Kansas in as a slave state. Right. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Uh, wow. It was the, the rules were at the time that he, there was no residency; it was a territory, and, and there was little government. There was little oversight of anything, other than a few people who first got there started setting up businesses and and making buildings in Lawrence, and there was a fort at Fort Leavenworth and one down at Fort Scott and a town around Fort Leavenworth. And and so really it was, you just have to understand, this was, we can't even imagine what it was like. It it was the frontier. It it was unpopulated. So, uh, and and really the law came out of a barrel of a gun at the time. And and, uh, the federal troops, really, they can't enforce state law. Uh, and they can only uh, they don't really enforce the law at all because of the Posse Comitatus Act is too <laughs> too difficult to go into. But federal troops can only keep the peace. They can't enforce any kind of laws within the United States. So Missourians just said, "Okay, we'll just go over there and vote." Anytime there's an election, they would ride over there and vote and ride back home. And there was really no oversight. There was no computers to go check to see where you lived in. They just say, "Yeah, I'm a new settler out here, and I'm I'm voting for this to be a slave state." So that's when Easterners, the uh, and abolitionists, started flogging out like crazy, and, and and wagon trains came across. Had to avoid Missouri to get to Kansas because Missourians would stop them coming up the river. And there was the main way to cross Missouri, and the easiest way was coming up the Missouri River. And once Missourians figured out anybody with an eastern accent and, and uh, uh, had a certain look to them, was probably an abolitionist, they started stopping them uh, just outside of Kansas City and turned them back. So they had to find a new route. They found a new route out of Chicago. They had to go north to Chicago, and then they come across Illinois, and Iowa was a free state, through the corner of Nebraska, and then straight south into Kansas. And so they brought enough Kansans in. By 1857, uh, Missourians gave it up, and it became a free territory. And that's when that set up the Underground Railroad, the the opportunity for the Underground Railroad. It really wasn't an opportunity because it was they were fighting all the time between the Kansans and Missourians had were having battles, and that's when John Brown came out. And, Is and, that uh, when uh, Kansas became known as Bloody Kansas? That was the Bloody Kansas. And, era. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that uh, that John Brown situation? I guess it was in the city of Lawrence, Kansas. Well, in in uh, Lawrence, Kansas, is uh, was probably the most famous abolitionist town at, at that point in time. And and in 1855, a large group of Missourians, led by a man, uh, uh, see the the sheriff of the Western District, or the Marshal, I believe, the Federal Marshal of the Western District of uh, uh, the United States in Missouri, uh, and a man named David Rice Atchison, who had been a state, uh, a, a United States Senator, one of the, like the second, the, the third United States Senator. The first two were appointed, Thomas Hart Benton and a man named Lynn, and then Lynn died, and, and David Rice Atchison was then appointed to, as the Senator and in the 1840s, and, and he had, I think he'd dropped out of the center, didn't run again because uh, he got so involved with this effort to keep make Kansas into a slave state. 
uh, he and this Sheriff Jones led a group of 500 men to Lawrence and, and burned it and looted it and um, rode back out. And then John Brown uh, was there with uh, had, had put together a small uh, company of men, or you know, and joined up with other uh, abolitionists and, and and formed several companies of of abolitionists to fight these Missourians off and. And that's when, uh, actually, John Brown, in retaliation for that, uh, and a couple of his sons surprised some uh, uh, pro-slavery people down down around um, Osawatomie, I believe, because he ended up being known as Osawatomie Brown, uh, surprised some pro-slavery people and, and killed about four or five of them. And then there was several other battles after that over the next few months. And, and any time the pro-slavery people would catch the abolitionists, the, it was murder, and, uh, and vice versa. Any time the abolitionists would catch some pro-slavery people and it was, there was an opportunity, there was murder. And, and it was like that for about a year. Were there um, any black uh, individuals who confronted uh, slave hunters and whatnot uh, during that period? Well, you know that's. Uh, and Heard anything I, of the Copeland brothers? No, I I, I, I don't know about them. Uh, part of my problem is I researched this was that the only people, the main people that wrote things down, were the white abolitionists, and, and they didn't write it till after the war uh, about their efforts because uh, up until the Civil War. Uh, you know, they, it was against the law to help a slave. Okay. There was a Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and it was against federal law. And so they did not write anything down until after the war got going and Civil War, and, and then everybody was busy off fighting the war, and then after the war is when they first started writing their accounts. And and any freedom seekers who had gotten out by then were, were pretty busy. They, they mainly couldn't read or write. And so there's not a lot of that history out there. It just sounds like you may know about some that, that I didn't pick up when I was making this movie. Okay. How well organized was the Western branch of the Underground Railroad? Oh, it was uh, it was really highly organized after as it got going. And we know that because there's uh, many instances of people from distances working together. And... and uh, Kind of, uh, and there was different people like uh, that had had certain jobs during the bloody Kansas era, during the Missouri-Kansas border wars area. For example, there was a man named Joseph Miller, and he was getting money from the rich Eastern abolitionists in order to bankroll, buy guns and, and ammunition and horses and and help people live who were fighting the Missourians. And and there was documents that that. He left accounting for that, and then when that border war stopped, then he just turned around and continued getting money from these same eastern supporters, and he put that out into the Underground Railroad people. So that was his only job. They were, I, I only know of one instance, one documented instance, where he went on a uh, – uh, uh, took any kind of action to help – people get away, help a freedom seeker get away. And that that's an action with John Brown, and it shows kind of the organization of it. This is in 1858. It's been going pretty good for a couple of years, and they've been getting more and more people out uh, 
north to Canada because they couldn't stand Kansas, they couldn't stand Nebraska, they couldn't stand southern Iowa. They had to get mainly to Chicago to find a large free black population. Were they known as the Secret Six? The the Secret Six were back east. That's who was funding uh, John Brown and and everybody else out here. Garrett Smith was the richest man in New York State at the time. Oh, okay. uh, 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 What's his name? Uh, uh, I, I can never remember their names right off the top of my head, and most of them, they're not uh, uh, household names today. Uh, one 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 kind of is, uh, uh, um, oh, his last name's Garrison, I can't remember now. But but the Secret Six were funding these guys from back east, and, and they funded John, John Brown. So to show the organization of it, John Brown frees 11 people down in Missouri. Mm-hmm. And, and he comes to Augustus Waddell's house, which is just across the state line from where he frees these people. And then uh, there are several other people in that area that they disperse the freedom seekers out to these other houses to lay low because they killed a slave master whenever they uh, uh, helped these people escape. And 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 one of the women... One, one of the freedom seekers is pregnant, and she's about to have a baby. So they can call up to by Leavenworth to a doctor by the name of James Blunt, and he comes down and he delivers the baby. And so then, after the baby's a few days later, you know, and this is <laughs> this is like about Christmas uh, of 1858, so it's cold, and, and you know, there's not a warm car or a bus that they can all get into. They get in an open wagon, is what they get into, two or three wagons. And or they're on horseback, and so then they go from Waddles and and the Waddles relatives and and James Montgomery's houses and these people that live down around Mound City, Nassau, and they go about 50 miles north in about a day and a half, and they get to Lawrence, and there they stay with uh, at Grover, we call Grover's Barn. It's, I think it's James Grover who was an Underground Railroad supporter, and and he didn't really go on. Trips. He just maintained the station at his barn. He had a kind of a commercial barn where they did sales of animals. And and there's other stories about people coming out of Quindaro and being shipped. There was one particular story where two men were shipped in boxes uh, on a freight wagon and and uh, out to Grover's barn from Quindaro. So that shows that connection from Waddles and John Brown and and James Montgomery and Dr. Blunt up to Lawrence to Grover. And then from Grover's barn, they go to Dan Sheridan's cabin in the south part of Topeka, Kansas. And John Ritchie, who was another Underground Railroad supporter, comes down with his wife and and takes part of the Freedom Seekers to their place and and to spend the night. And other people in Topeka uh, show up, and, and they've gotten clothes together and gotten food together and bring it to the extra clothes for this long trip and, and more food and help supply the wagon. And then John Brown goes north, and, and they get up to Holton, Kansas, about oh, two days' uh, journey north of Topeka, and they run into a big Missouri posse. So he sends a uh, an area fella back to Topeka who rounds up about, 25 men from Topeka, and they all come back up and and have this little battle called the Battle of the Spurs with this Missouri posse. Uh, beat them off. They call it the Battle of Spurs because the only real weapons that the Missourians used were their spurs that they put to their horses. They were so afraid of this group of uh, of abolitionists and John Brown. 
and, and so then they go up north and, and they hit Mayhew's cabin, which is uh, one of John Brown's lieutenant, Lieutenant Kagey's sister and her husband, and they stay there for a night, and then they hit all these different places across Iowa. So they knew exactly where to go, and, and so that shows the org- how highly organized it was. Okay. You mentioned earlier um, the um, Garrett Smith. Right. And I want our listeners to be aware that Layla Guest will be speaking on that on August the 5th. Okay. Uh, on uh, At the uh, Petersburg's Emancipation Day uh, celebration. And uh, so I would remind our listeners that uh, they can learn more about that. Um, now you mentioned the quilt, or something about. Uh, did I hear you mention something about the quilt, the use of well, quilt for uh, communication? How was uh, that? How was that done? That's always an that? interesting uh, topic and, and and subject on uh, uh, communication uh, for slaves. How did how did the freedom seeker know get information? From other people, what kind of communication was there? And and there's there's a book out there about quilts and the Underground Railroad, and uh, that's it's gotten kind of quite controversial. Uh, that author believes, and and they I've read it. They interview someone who is a relative, I believe, of a freedom seeker and or a former slave, and. Uh, they say that these quilts were used, and there are certain patterns, the the mucky wrench pattern and the crossroads, and, and I, I, I didn't really go into it in my movie, and I'll tell you, in my documentary, and I'll tell you why in a minute, but certain patterns would indicate certain things to uh, a passing freedom seeker. The person would lay, lay the quilt out outside where someone could see it. But all the people, that uh, the experts that I talked to and are in my film, uh, none of them had any kind of primary source documents other than this book, and and I don't remember the. Uh, I don't think they had any primary source documents where people wrote about this at the time. It was primarily by word of mouth uh, uh, from parent to child to grandchild, maybe, and and so they none of them know about any of this. They. Uh, I asked them. Well, I talked to them about it, and they said the best they could think they could learn, because uh, they they really didn't learned nothing in their 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 research, nothing about communication to slaves. Now, slaves could not read or write for the most part. And, uh, one out of you know maybe a thousand might be able to read or write, but but people knew do know. They, they first of all they listen. They and and so in Missouri they'd be listening to the slave master complain about those horrible awful Kansans. Uh, the the family that John Brown rescued in the story I just told you. Uh, the the historian that got that they they talked to people who were involved with John Brown after the war. Uh, they they talked to uh two of the freedom seekers in eighteen uh seventy five I think they found two of these freedom seekers in um, uh Canada still living there and, and and talked to them about what happened and as best they could remember that that they didn't know, but Jim Daniels just knew about John Brown and he uh 
was able to get over into Kansas and talk to somebody who could get word to John Brown. And so uh, another way that they knew about people was uh, we have one writing uh, that was written right after the war by a man named John Armstrong, and he talked about the first day. He, he is a man that, that established the route from Topeka to Iowa, the first one that, that took anybody up that route and and talked to people along the way and found people who agreed to provide help along that route. That would be about a, a, a f- depending on whether it would be anywhere from a four- to eight- or nine-day journey from Topeka, Kansas, up to uh, Nebraska and across the river to Missouri River into Iowa. And he said, he talked about this woman named Ann Clark, and, and it was the first freedom seeker that he took out. And he said that Ann had gotten away, and, and she was actually a slave inside the state of Kansas. She didn't come over from Missouri. And because and, uh, there were, uh, uh, just because it was free territory, it didn't mean you couldn't own slaves. And uh, Right. I have a question so, about that uh, free territory. Okay. Uh, and... Um, by the way, we had an email come in that uh, Maya Angelou um, has made some comments on the quilting and that uh, her comment was when a slave was sold off, the family would take a piece of their garment as a symbol mm-hmm. to remember them, and they would sew it into a quilt. And as people left, then, of course, that quilt would get bigger and bigger. It was a way right. to do their, uh, uh, their genealogy. Now, oh, you mentioned that... Yeah, you mentioned that slaves would get over into Illinois on this Underground Railroad and then over into uh, Nebraska. Right. And those were free states, so why would they, once in a free state, what was the motivation to continue north? Well, the, it was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, and that... The we, we in our constitution it, it says I can't quote it exactly, but it says that if you're a person held in bondage, and you get away, that uh, the law provides a means for you to be brought back to your slave master, basically. And, but that wasn't really enough for the slave master of 1850, because by 1850 a lot of people had figured out how to get away and, and uh, back east and going across the Ohio River and, and uh, uh, up into New York. And, and these eastern abolitionists were really active then. And, <clears throat> and so um, they, 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 they demanded because of the, the Congress and the slave power was was at that point in time had pretty well could dominate what they wanted in the uh, Congress and the Senate. Even though they they were they were a minority, there were so many northern states that depended on the southern agricultural project, products, cotton in particular, that they could dominate the Senate and and the uh, House of Representatives. So they got this law passed called the uh, and. Was it Van Buren? He was uh, he was pretty much pro-slavery too, and and so the president went along with it. So I got the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 passed, and and what that said, uh, in without going into great detail, was that any person could be brought back from any place in the United States. At the time, several states up north had passed laws saying that you know by state law, you know if you're 
you get away, then you're home free if you're in our state. But federal law, of course, always trumps state law. And uh, and so this law set up special courts. It it paid uh, bounties. It 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 had one one of the uh, uh, articles in the law said that if you were asked to help uh, a slave master get the slave back and you didn't, you could be charged also, and you could be charged if you helped anybody uh, with a with a uh, uh, felony. A- and they set up a they set up a special court, and in that court. Uh, they appointed special magistrates that could not; those cases could not be reviewed by the normal appellate process. Once that uh, uh, that special uh, slave court, we'll call it, uh, ruled, then that was it. There was no appeal, and of course, the freedom seeker could not testify for themselves. And so, what was happening was many uh, bounty hunters were just tearing up free papers and. Taking people to the back down south and selling them, uh, it's a lot more lucrative to take somebody. They don't, you know, getting somebody for rewards one thing. You get a twenty-five or a fifty-dollar reward, but you can take them back to a, a slave market in St. Louis. You can get fifteen hundred dollars. That's much better. So um, uh, they set up these special courts because people were saying, you know, hey, I, I'm really free, and so they, you know, the court was set up, and you could go into court. If uh, if you got some maybe some local people who would say no, that's a free man. He's been living here for the last ten years. But you can go into this court now. That magistrate he got paid five dollars if uh, you were found to be a free person, but he got paid ten dollars if you were found to be a slave and sent him back. There was an economic south. incentive there. <laughs> there was a little Quite economic an incentive ruling, uh, yeah. against the freedom seeker, and and now the reasoning for it was that there was more paperwork involved if. You ruled that the person uh, uh, were a slave, and and you had to sign some kind of order, and they had to be sent back south. And and then the federal government would even they even had money that the uh, they would reimburse the people that would take the slave back to the slave master. So uh, that that and that was anywhere in the United States. It didn't matter. That's why they uh, there was a mass migration to Canada. I just was reading a book and. And and they said there's many as as thirty to forty thousand freedom seekers in Canada at one time. So when Dred Scott went into court here in Missouri, the famous Dred Scott decision, um, he was not an escaped slave. Then he was going in. He was taken to um, a free uh, territory by his master. Right. And is that the reason that the court would take up his case? Because he was right. not an that, escaped slave. Uh, the the point of law, I believe, on that was that he had once he if he was able to step his foot onto free soil, then was he free? And they uh, uh, got into court on it, and uh, he had actually he he had sued for his freedom, saying that 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 was uh, basically he had been in free territory and, and and once he set his foot in free territory then he should be free and, and uh of course uh roger taney or chief justice taney ruled against him and the court old court ruled against him on that and the famous decision uh, uh the language came out that really said what uh uh this any uh, this 
slave power at the time, and, and a whole lot of white folks at the time believed was that uh, a slave has no rights that a white man is bound to respect, and, and uh, so that's that's uh, and that was in uh, see that was before 1850. That was 1846, I believe. Okay. No, 18, it actually was 1850 when they did that, and that's when the uh, um, um, Fugitive Slave Act came out. Was the same year. I see. There was a similar case in Philadelphia, Jane. Johnson, I believe, was her name. Uh, apparently, there were individuals in Philadelphia who were encouraging slave owners to bring their their slaves to Philadelphia or to the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, what were some of the penalties uh, for whites that assisted um, slaves to escape uh, to free territory? Well, it, it, it was basically uh, uh, theft, and, and there would be, and, and even if you weren't, if the, say that you weren't charged in federal court, you could be charged in state court with what we call, we would call slave stealing, and so the penalties would be as if you stole money from somebody, and and uh, I'm trying to think of uh, multiple years in the penitentiary. Uh, I don't. There was not a death penalty on that that I remember, but oh, multiple okay. years in the penitentiary. A few years in the penitentiary. Yeah, and, and it would depend on you know like uh, John Doy, Doctor John Doy, who was caught uh, taking freedom seekers north by Missourians, uh, brought back to Platte City, Missouri, and then tried in St. Joe. He got five years for slave stealing. It was like you stole a horse or a cow or a person. It was all the same under the uh, statutes, but they they did call it slave stealing. And then they had other laws called enticing. Uh, you, if they thought that somebody even was talking to a slave about escaping or printing uh, uh, abolitionist literature, there was laws against print, printing abolitionist literature, uh, and all of which were felonies, and all of which would be multiple years. I, I can't remember. You know, it could be anywhere from one year to ten years, or something like that. I, I'd have to go back and research those statutes to see the exact amount of time. We're here in the state of uh, uh, Missouri. Um, were there organized routes that were traveled over and over? Uh, in uh, you know, good question. Inside the slave state, it was really up to the individual freedom seeker to get themselves out. There were uh, I have one uh, incident or one recorded person out on the western part. There were some other back east, but I didn't really delve into uh, people back east. Where a Reverend John Stewart, uh, who lived uh, just south of Lawrence, Kansas, would come over to Missouri uh, along the border. He wouldn't go too far into Missouri because you remember distances. <laughs> it would take him a day just to get to Missouri from from Lawrence, and then uh, you know he would. How much further was he going to go? And so another day would be, you know, maybe to the second county into Missouri. So he would get into Missouri, and he would talk to people out in the field and, and then maybe make arrangements to meet them later that night and bring them back. But mainly what what people had to do was just travel by night, and the only people to help them were uh, other slaves. And, and they could maybe stay in the slave quarters or they could uh, stay in the, the woods out, you know, somewhere close to the house and, and, a, and let uh, 
slaves on a farm know that they were there and they would maybe take them some food or something at night and direct uh, direct them the right way. And in Missouri, they knew to go west. They knew to go if they were along the river, which the majority of our slave plantations were along the Missouri River. They would know to just keep going upriver, basically, or, or west and, until they got to Kansas. Was that the area along the Missouri River known as Little Dixie? Right. It was. It, it's still known as Little Dixie. We have Little Dixie uh, uh, recreation area down there, I think, and and all those counties uh, uh, along the Missouri River and maybe to the first county out were, were what we would call Little Dixie, because everybody along those counties were from Tennessee and, and Kentucky primarily, and and they were all slave masters and used slaves. That, that was another thing that uh, Eastern farmers. The abolitionist farmers that came out to Kansas, they didn't really want to compete with the slave system using free labor either. That was another reason they had kind of a, uh, a, a they only, not only they mainly had a moral. Uh, it was mainly it was to, to the abolitionists it was morally wrong to hold another person in bondage, but but everybody didn't feel like that. But they they also did uh, some of the people just simply didn't like slavery because they didn't want to be slave masters and they didn't want to have to complete compete against somebody using free labor. So it's it's okay. never quite as simple as as what we think. And some people just you know they just like to fight, and so they pick that side. Gary, what about the uh, surrounding states of Missouri that bordered Missouri, like Arkansas and? In Indian Territory, which later became the state of Oklahoma, did the Western uh, Underground Railroad reach into Arkansas and Oklahoma? Well, uh, those folks down there, and, and Arkansas, you know, you think about northern Arkansas, it, it was all hills. It was not any good farmland. There weren't many slaves in, in, uh, in that hill country. As you got further down the central part of Arkansas, then uh, there were slave farms, and, and certainly there were slaves being held in Indian territory. And, and uh, as we know, that the uh, uh, Indian tribes down there held slaves also. And, and so uh, there were several reported instances that of uh, people coming out of Arkansas and Indian territory or Oklahoma, uh, but they still had to make their way north. And about the further south that that I found was about halfway, say halfway between uh, Topeka and uh, Oklahoma and Arizona, say a uh, hundred miles. Uh, Osawatomie and Mound City uh, were kind of the southernmost places that there, these abolitionists were had farms, and and people had to get to there. Uh, once they got to there on their own, and, and they would have known again from their slave masters these awful Kansans who did not like slavery, and, and they just they they would have known they were up north of this, and and they just had to take a chance and start north until they they started finding farms and and finding people who who were abolitionists, and, and that was not till they got up fifty or about a hundred miles north of of the Arkansas and Oklahoma borders into Kansas. I see. Don't re- didn't really find any. Uh, any organization on down into there. There was some, but uh, I, I did not, none of my experts had anything on that. Not as well organized as it was in... Uh, right. It was, it was primarily the organization, like I said, was Mound City, Osawatomie, uh, Lawrence, Topeka, uh, Quindaro, 
uh, not even at Fort Leavenworth or Fort Scott, because remember, until the war started, it was against federal law, and that's okay. where seats of government were. That's where federal troops were, and and uh, many of the the military were slave masters themselves. You know, the uh, southern southerners until the war were the biggest part of our military. Yeah, that 1850 uh, fugitive slave law, by the way. Uh, it overrode the the original fugitive law of 1793. Right. And uh, the law of 1793 demanded that the owner had to obtain a warrant. Uh, right. For the fugitive, but after you know, I didn't. You're right. I didn't go into that before the owner had to had to make his case. Uh, after the Fugitive Slave Act, they didn't. They could just take them, and then if the slave got it into court, then the slave had the burden of proof, basically, and that was for the Northwest Territories. Okay. At that time, people were escaping out of the South and the Northwest Territories. Well, do you know anything that the Gold Rush of 1849 might have played into that? Uh, well, uh, um, the slave law. You know, I know there is a connection, and and maybe uh, do you know? Can you refresh my memory on that? I can't. Uh, a lot well, of people. It seems like there was a, there, a compromise. Uh, the California was Cali yeah to get California to come in. It was a compromise. Uh, Senator Henry Clay out of Kentucky. Right. And uh, and I guess gold replaced the slave as the most valuable commodity in 1850. Um, so that uh, that law overrode the law of 1793. Um, now you mentioned a gentleman by the name of John Ritchie earlier, right? Yeah, and did he have some connection with the um, uh, the board of uh, Brown versus John, the Board of Education? Yeah, John John Ritchie is a most interesting character. He was a uh, early, uh, well-known, kind of the main Underground Railroad guy in Topeka. And um, Richie was actually quite successful, and he had a, uh, a big stone quarry and did a lot of building and, and bought up a lot of land early on and then was able to resell it and help build the town of the what became the state capital of Topeka. And um, John Richie... Uh, uh, he believed in equality for everybody. He wanted uh, he wanted people to stay in Kansas. Once once the war started, he lobbied for uh, the freedom seekers who were coming out of Missouri. They were still coming out of Missouri, even though the war was going. They still Missouri was still a slave state, and you could be a slave, and they could have slaves in Missouri. And, and so they were still coming out of Missouri, and, and he lobbied uh, with the other Underground Railroad people to keep them. Uh, uh, make it where people could stay in Kansas because they knew they they needed people to work this frontier. They needed employees. He needed employees for his uh, stone quarry, and and he had bought a lot of land just south of about oh, it's about twenty blocks or so south of the state capital. It's eleven sixteen South Madison is the exact address. His house is a uh, uh, on the National Historic. Uh, uh, Register of Historic Sites today, and it's been restored. And, and so he sold lots all around his house, or gave lots, or provided lots for his employees, and, and it became the first neighborhood uh, that was primarily African American people 
uh, in South Topeka. What, what, what then was South Topeka? Now, that's a long ways from South Topeka today, but that was South Topeka. And, and so then people stayed there, and they worked and worked for him and worked around Topeka and had families and descendants stayed in the same neighborhood. And, and in the turn of the century, they started building schools in the neighborhood. And, and uh, there's a street, there's a school there now called the Monroe Street School. And uh, John Ritchie's long dead by now, and and that's where Linda Brown attended the Monroe Street School, and that's and that's the school that uh, where the Brown versus the Board of Ed- versus the Board of Education lawsuit came out of, and of course it was several lawsuits joined together to uh, uh, get to the Supreme Court and come up with uh, what Tom Rosenblum over at the National Parks. Uh, Calls the most transformative law in the uh, history of the United States, which ended segregation in school, which started ending segregation everywhere in 1950. What was it 1954? Oh, 54. Okay. Yeah, it was I guess it was 57 when it really has not really started happening until about. Yeah, 50. it was 57 before it really got implemented. And, and so that that school today is just a what, four blocks south of the National Historic Site of John. Richie's house, the Underground Railroad conductor, and and it's now a that school is a national historic site for the Brown versus versus the Board of Education. It's a really nice, uh, well preserved. It's the original school, and they have the school rooms, and they have uh, uh, really nice displays, and run by the National Park Service. So uh, it's really they call it the pathway uh, to freedom over there in, in Topeka, to, from okay. the Underground Railroad to the Brown versus the Board of Education. I see. Um, we talked about John Brown earlier and Lawrence. Um, did John Brown actually act as a conductor on the uh, Western Underground Railroad? You know, he he did a little bit. He mainly was out there for the fight. And then uh, he led several battles and, and fought these Missourians off. And, and once it became uh, evident that the Missourians were given up and this was going to become free territory, he went back east. Uh, and, and because he had a, he, his real plan was to go into the Deep South. And his real plan was to the arsenal at Harper's Ferry because he was an Easterner, basically. And, and uh, uh, he knew about the, the arsenal at Harper's Ferry, and he knew about the lay of the land all along the Appalachian Mountains. And, and his real plan was to get these guns and arm, uh, take them out of Harper's Ferry and, and go into the Appalachian Mountains and establish forts and, and with escaping with freedom seekers and arm them and, and start doing raids into the Deep South and, and freeing people and bringing them up through this Appalachian uh, through the Appalachian Mountains and be and protect the freedom seekers with this army he was going to put together. But uh, so he had he had left Kansas and when uh, the real underground railroad things were starting. But he knew of all these people and was involved with them and uh, because of the border war. And, and when he came back, that was his only real documented kind of. Uh, time that he conducted people all the way north to Canada, and uh, uh, when he did the raid on, raid on the slave farms, and it was it was kind of a distraction because he, he had been back east, he'd gotten a lot of money from the Secret Six, and uh, as my one expert said, that this was uh, these were some of the richest men in the United States, and it was it was just like uh, Warren Buffett or Bill Gates 
giving money uh, to somebody for a terrorist operation inside the United States. And believe me, after the Harper's Ferry uh, truth was revealed and John Brown was arrested, and, and uh, they they ran for cover. So the several of them went to Canada, and, and they all laid low for quite a while. Uh, the government never did go after them uh, for their support of John Brown, but uh, they did lay low. So John Brown, he, he also, you know, he needed to try this. How, how would this work to go into the slave territory and free people and then bring them back north? And so that's why he tried the one raid into Missouri, brought people out, and brought them this 1,500-mile journey all the way to Canada. Hey, from that, that was in 1859. Um, that was in the... March of 1859, when he got to Canada, in October of 1859 is when he shows up again at Harper's Ferry, and, and uh, uh, so that's kind of the the history of John Brown and his operations along the Underground Railroad. But I, I talk about that in my book. I also wrote a uh, historical novel called John Brown and the Last Train that goes into that whole trip in detail. Okay, is that a companion to? The companion to the uh, Freedom Seekers stories. The Freedom Seekers video. Yeah, yeah you can go um, to uh, www.lifedocumentaries.com uh, and uh, see clips from the film and, and excerpts from the book. And by I've the seen the book. film. It's an excellent film. Who was the uh, the narrator in the film, and and what about the music in that in that particular video? Well, there's a there's a local actor, a man named Danny Cox, who. Uh, uh, Came here. I remember him from the early '70s. You may remember the old Vanguard Coffee House, and, and uh, down on Maine, it was kind of like our our an answer to uh, Kansas City's answer to Greenwich Village and the Village Vanguard and places like that. And he was a singer-songwriter, and, and he has this great uh, uh, deep bass voice. And and he's stayed in Kansas City, and he's written music and performed and and uh, uh, been an actor and, and all these years. And, and so when I was putting this together, uh, my first one, I, uh, I I did it on even more of a shoestring than this one. And, and so I wanted, I knew that first and what it was lacking. This is a learning process. And what it was lacking was uh, really good music and a really good narrator to tie things together. So mm -hmm. I, I talked to Danny Cox, and, and we came to an agreement, and... Uh, uh, I wrote him a script, and, and so he did the narration. And he also composed a song about, you know, it's an original com uh, composition about the Underground Railroad that, that we put in the movie. And, and then we got some other, My I had a sound guy that I then took it to, and he had some other musicians that uh, composed some music, uh, some little kind of tidbits, little snippets of different uh, uh, music that were appropriate to accent different things in the movie. Yeah, you mentioned earlier about John Brown and terrorism. Uh, I think some people would view him as an anti-terrorist. <laughs> the yeah. slaveholders were the actual terrorists, right? Right. Uh, in that situation, and he, uh, John Brown, probably started an anti-terrorist movement. <laughs> um, although uh, the popular press at the time and probably would I wouldn't write it up that way. Uh, right, no, they wouldn't dare, and and the statutes yeah. at the time, <laughs> he was not in agreement with the actual laws at the time. So that's why I would say that he could be viewed as a as conducting a terrorist operation inside the United States. Uh, uh, More of an anti-terrorist, I would. Think. <laughs> uh, I know he endeared himself to uh, a number of black folk in this country. 
Right. There's a song, John Brown's Body Lies a Molten in the Grave, something on that order. Right, right. Uh, that became a, a, a troop song during the Civil War, I understand, too, that, yeah. that they would sing. Yeah, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, you know. Exactly. exactly. So uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, al- it's always interesting to look at uh, what people thought the majority of the people in the United States what thought was right. Now, I know this is hard to believe in, in 2012. It, 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 we just find it almost impossible to believe, but the majority of the people in the United States believed that it was perfectly right and proper and moral to hold human beings as, as slaves forever. And... Uh, and then the shift started at some point in time. It was pretty early that it started, but it was a really small little group of people that started this. And and they say out of the, the experts that, that I talked to said that really there was a second great awakening in uh, uh, the 1830s, 1840s, and a lot of people uh, uh, got saved, uh, started going to church that hadn't gone before, started taking temperance pledges, and, and out of that second great awakening, came uh, the abolitionist movement, and, and that's when they said, you know, this is a, uh, there's a famous, um, uh, uh, one of the uh, one of the popes and said, if a, wrong, a law is morally wrong, then it's not a law. And so that was the idea that, that came out of the Second Great Awakening, that this law that approved of slavery, that made it legal to hold people in slavery, is morally wrong, therefore it is not a law. And so the abolitionists didn't really believe that they were breaking the law. But the majority of the United States believed that they were. Well, and are we grateful that they did? <laughs> and aren't we grateful that they had the courage to do it? As I was going through these stories of these Kansans, and and as... Uh, uh, um, one of my experts said, well, uh, the question was, well, what were the penalties? And he said, well, you could lose your property, you could lose your freedom, or you could die. And and that was true. Those were kind of the three options that, that could happen to you if you were caught uh, helping someone find freedom. Mm-hmm. And, and just think about, uh, you know, that these people were willing to lose their life, lose their property, or lo- uh, and uh, uh, or lose their freedom in order to help someone else get freedom. And, and there was a whole bunch of them over there in Kansas. I, I, I don't really know the count, but they said in Topeka at one time, uh, one person said you could, uh, uh, a freedom seeker could find a friendly face at any house in Topeka at one time. Now, now. What that meant was it wasn't meant didn't mean that everybody would load up their wagon and start you north, but it at least meant that they wouldn't turn you in, or it meant that they would give you some food, uh, or it meant that they would take you to somebody who would uh, take you to freedom. That very first uh, Ann Clark that uh, John Armstrong talked about taking out, she uh, um, she had just gotten away from her slave master. She'd gotten caught and. They took her to uh, LeCompton, which was the pro-slavery capital of Missouri at the time, and, and we're going to take her back to her slave master. She got away again, and then John Armstrong Strong says she saw a man with a book and figured he was a free state man. And, mm-hmm. and, what, and what that says to me is uh, that they believed that free state people would be the people who were educated and the uh, uh, 
pro-slavery people were the people who weren't educated and the people who got drunk, and, and uh, there was probably some truth to that because those were Eastern abolitionists were all, uh, you know, had taken temperance pledges and, and were strong Christians and did not drink. Gary, could you, uh, we're running short of time here. Okay. It catches up with us, it seems. Uh, your contact information, how can people, again, get a hold of you, get a copy of your material, okay, it, the cost, it, et cetera? It is uh, um, $25 for the movie, and I have uh, Negroes to Hire, the story of uh, slave life and culture in Antebellum, Missouri, as well as Freedom Seekers. They're each $25 uh, and $10 for the book, John Brown and the Last Train, and, and they can be purchased at www.life.com documentaries.com that's l-i-f-e d-o-c-u m-e-n-t-a-r-i-e-s dot com and, and uh, or you can call me at 816-931-3535 I'd be happy to talk to anybody say that again I was rather uh, fast eight, and I couldn't write it oh, down quick oh, okay 816-931-3535 okay I got it that time 861-931 3535. Yeah, 816, area code 816. And also on that uh, Negroes to Hire and the controversy uh, you mentioned around the title. Right. Um, I've lost a few screens because of that title. Buck O'Neill, who was a founder of the Negro League's Baseball Museum here in Kansas City a few years back, uh, came up with that same controversy over the name. Negro. Oh, yeah, that's right. He would have, wouldn't he? Yeah, and he was very affirmative, uh, very staunch in sticking with that name because of the period um, that they were speaking of. It was known as the Negro Leagues, and anything, right. any other name would have demeaned the Negro Leagues and the players and the mm-hmm. sacrifices that they made and the history that they set down. So Interesting. Uh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I didn't really think about that in relation to mine because, you know, it, it, I mean, that was it's historically accurate. That was the language of the time. And, exactly. And, and I want, you know, the, one of the reasons I made this movie and I continue to try to show it, and, and I've actually pr- made a proposal to some people to use it as diversity training and corporate diversity training. And, and the, the jury's out right now. I've, I've I cut it down to a shorter uh time frame and I broke it up into segments and I'm going to ask a series of questions as I show each segment to as as diversity trainings for corporations and so uh, uh they asked me actually one of them said you know in corporate the corporate world I cannot put that title out there like that so I am making that concession to them we're just changing it to slaves to hire but we'll right. talk about negroes to hire if I start doing a diversity training for corporations there we go Diversity training. Gary, we're out of time. All right, Preston. Uh, well, thank you. So sad. We'll have me on on another time thank to get you to Leslie. Leslie. Uh, talk over these things. And I want to apologize to Miss Leslie. Her name is not Layla, it is oh. Leslie <laughs> Gist. Leslie Gist. The uh, Gist Leslie. of Freedom. Let's get that straight. Gist of Freedom. We got Radio it. Radio blog. <laughs> All right. Hey, good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.